Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today, we are going to pick up right where we left off last time when it comes to Otto Skorzeny. So, in the previous episode, we talked about Otto Skorzeny's early years, about how he got into dueling and fencing, and how he would become a part of the Nazi party, and how after becoming part of a Nazi party, he would make his way up the ranks until eventually he would lead a commando operation or multiple commando operations and would become, in his own words, Hitler's top commando. We talked about the Grand Sasso raid where he would help in the rescue of Mussolini. We would talk about subsequent, you know, werewolf operations and other assassinations and other military operations that he was a part of up until he would surrender after the war when all the Axis powers were told to surrender and Hitler was dead, all of this stuff. And so now Skorzeny has had his trial set up and he is going to be detained. And so that is where we are picking up in the last episode, you know. So we've seen Skorzeny's rise from the son of a civil engineer to where he started getting involved with all of the Nazi military stuff. He wanted to become part of the Luftwaffe. He was too tall, so he could not become part of the Luftwaffe, and he would instead get into this commando stuff initially when they were creating a new commando platoon and they needed someone to lead it. So he would do all this studying, and it would become him who would become this, and he would get all these promotions, especially after the rescue of Mussolini, and most importantly to what we will get into later on, he would get all of these skills when it comes to assassinations, abductions, paramilitary tactics, guerrilla warfare, all of this stuff would end up making him useful to Western intelligence agencies, the CIA, Operation Gladio type stuff, the Mossad, and we're going to start getting into how he got connected to Western intelligence in this episode and so let's get into Skorzeny being detained into the trials all of this stuff which is going to be a very very important factor in him eventually getting connected to intelligence and all of this so without further ado let's just go ahead and jump into things if you want to know about what happened before then and you haven't listened to the last episode Go look at the last episode, and I will say what sources I'm using as I go through everything. So, And you can also find those sources in the description for the show below. So let's get into it. So it was during Skorzeny's trial that we first get, begin to see you know, some of these connections he had formed to people that would end up playing a role in future special operations. And it is Skorzeny's trial where we first begin to see some of the connections he had formed to people that will later end up playing a role in these future special operations alongside the former Nazi commando. So on August 18th, 1947, Skorzeny and nine of his former commandos would be brought up before a military tribunal in Dachau. And just for the sake of clarity, you know, Skorzeny did not have anything to do with the concentration camp, concentration camp at Dachau. But Dachau had been chosen as the city to hold some of the trials of lower level Nazis. 
and it was here that Skorzeny would be tried. So one of the first things to take place in the trial of Skorzeny to indicate that something strange was afoot, um, author of the Skorzeny papers, Ralph Gannis, would point out that the incident we are about to discuss proves that Skorzeny had established communication with members of his old command on the outside. So what is it that I'm talking about? Well, during the trial, a witness for the prosecution would say that Skorzeny had given poisoned bullets to his command during the Battle of the Bulls, which we discussed in the last episode, which was quite the story, and it would catch the attention of those holding the tribunals. So Skorzeny would immediately tell his lawyer that this was not the case, and the author of the Skorzeny biography, Commando Extraordinary, um, Charles Foley, would say that Skorzeny, in order to get the evidence he needed, would smuggle out a message to his fellow Nazi who was being held in a separate location, Carl Radel. And Radel would disseminate this message to some of the friends in town that he had, and by breakfast the following morning, he would have a waterproof bullet, Skorzeny would, smuggled to him in a piece of bread. So, you know, he talks to this fellow Nazi of his who's being held in a separate detention place, and this bullet gets smuggled into a piece of bread. And when we're talking about Radel, Radel was no small figure in the life of Scorzini, and Scorzini would often rely upon him for what H.P. Alvarelli Jr. described as detailed operational planning. We briefly touched on that in the last episode, but Scorzini was really the big ideas guy. But Scorzini, by some accounts, was not the cunning mastermind strategist he portrayed himself to be. Stuart Smith, the author of Otto Scorzini, The Devil's Disciple, would describe Scorzini as the big idea man, and Radel as the one who found practical ways of achieving these ideas of Scorsini. But anyhow, back to the bullet. This bullet would then be used during his trial as a piece of evidence, and Scorzini would claim that this was the bullet he recognized as being the one he issued his command, and the prosecution's witness would say that this was the bullet that he had seen. So, Gannis takes the fact that Scorzini could have a specific bullet smuggled to him in jail within a period of only 16 hours as proof that Scorzini at this point in time already had a clandestine network he was operating inside and who would assist him. And we will see as Scorzini makes his escape and gets set up to intelligence agencies that this is by no means unbelievable. But another thing of note to take place during Scorzini's trial, which would last for three weeks, was the appearance of a surprise witness in Scorzini's defense. And this witness, Commander Yeo Thomas, might give us a clue as to the kind of network Scorzini was operating inside. But before we return to trial and the subsequent escape or release of Scorzini, uh, we must learn about this commander, Yeo Thomas. And so in order to properly understand how Scorzini became involved with Cold War operations throughout the series, we will have to kind of abandon the narrative briefly in order to explore some of the intelligence-connected stay-behind operations that existed in Europe in the immediate aftermath of World War II. 
and with a plethora of these groups and their web of connections existing between all these various government agencies and private front groups, it can get complex to say the least. So I will do my best to condense this information down. So forgive me if any of this is difficult to follow, but I will do my best to simplify everything. But we do have to understand these networks that exist in order to where it'll make sense when I'm talking about Yeo Thomas and his relationship to Scorzini and stuff. We really do have to have this context. But anyhow, after World War II, France was in a real transitional period, to put it lightly. In 1945, the people would vote for a new constitution, which would create the Fourth Republic. And at the beginning of the following year, President Charles de Gaulle would step down and the French Communist Party was looking as if it were going to achieve victory in the country, which as all of you know is not acceptable to Western intelligence agencies. You can't let those dirty pinko commie bastards into power. So something had to be done. And what would be done but American and British intelligence operations would create what was called Plan Blue and weaponize the far right in France in order to prevent any kind of communist takeover of Europe that they feared, you know, with every fiber of their being. And in the previous episode, we did discuss about how Scorzini was already involved with the La Cagoule and all these, you know, uh, French fascists, and the Nazis were trying to create a basically fascist alliance inside of France. So Scorzini was kind of already operating with some of these French intelligence guys, Jean Fouillot, who I said, you know, in the last episode, you know, keep him in mind because he's going to come back up in the narrative. But anyways, I'm going to read a brief little segment from Daniel Danielle Ganzer in his book NATO's Secret Army, Operation Gladio and Terrorism in Western Europe, where he would write in regards to what exactly it is that Plan Blue was. And he would say, according to the far-reaching allegations of the French interior minister, the CIA and the MI6 together with French right-wing paramilitaries had planned to stage a coup d'etat in France in the summer of 1947. In the wake of the revelation, several arrests and investigations followed. Among the arrested conspirators was Earl Edme de Vaupien. His castle forest close to Lambelle in the north of France had served as the headquarters for the final coup preparations. Investigating Commissioner Angie Antoni found heavy weapons, battle orders, and operation plans on the castle. The plans revealed that an essential component of the secret war the Plan Blue conspirators had intended to escalate the already intense, uh, the already tense political climate in France by committing acts of terror, blaming them on the left, and thus create suitable conditions for a coup d'etat. So as we can see, this is classic Operation Gladio type stuff. And Plan Blue, if I remember correctly, would actually be started before Operation Gladio, at least in name, was already started. But 
you know, right after World War II, the Western intelligence agencies and the fascists over in Europe were working hand in hand in order to create these stay behind networks in order to foster these false flag terrorist events and blaming them on, you know, those evil, dirty pinko commie bastards because you can't let the communist come into power. And so do whatever horrible atrocity that you have to and blame it on the communist, you know, because anything's better than the communist coming into power. And if some innocent people have to die in order to achieve that, well, that was by no means unacceptable to the Western intelligence agencies and the fascist in order to stop a possible red tide in France. So that is what Plan Blue was. But this is just one of the many examples of these secret stay-behind armies created by Western intelligence amidst the fear of communism grabbing a foothold in Europe. And they will appear time and time again when it comes to Otto Skorzeny, because Otto Skorzeny was kind of like a go-to guy for training these different groups, for getting involved, giving some sort of, you know, strategic help to them. You know, Skorzeny was the guy to go to. But, hey, I mean, he had experience in the world of setting up, you know, fascist paramilitary groups and instructing them and whatnot. And we saw that he was already with the Nazis trying to create this fascist alliance in France. So, I mean, I guess if you're trying to do this Operation Gladio bullshit, that he's not a bad guy to go to. But so, without delving too much deeper, which we most definitely could, Let's return to Commander Yeo Thomas. Thomas had been a Royal Air Force commander, and he was also a high-level operator in the Special, Operation, Special Operations Executive, excuse me, which was the secret British intelligence group which conducted sabotage and espionage in occupied Europe. That is like uh, William Stevenson and those type of guys, you know, those operating outside of, you know, a Rockefeller building, and there was a lot of coordination between William Stevenson and people like Donovan, uh, Wild Bill Donovan, which we'll get into later. But anyways, Commander E.O. Thomas was part of this British intelligence group that is kind of like, along with the OSS, is, you know, one of these old-school intelligence groups that existed prior to the CIA and stuff like that. But Thomas's specialty was organizing and directing French resistance groups in the area. So what is it that the man co-named White Rabbit would do during Scorzini's trial? Well, despite the fact that E.O. Thomas would suffer at the hands of the Nazis himself, which is a whole other story which we could dive deeper into, but if you want to figure out a little bit about that, you can read about it in the Scorzini papers, and there's also other stuff out there about Commander E.O. Thomas, I'm sure, where you can figure out about it. But Thomas would make an appearance along with other British and American officers at Skorzeny's trial, and when the scar-faced Nazi entered the room, they would all salute him, which all it says in the Skorzeny papers is that they would salute him, which I'm wondering what kind of salute it was exactly that they gave him. But anyways, um, later Thomas would even say on the last day of Skorzeny's trial that he had worn a German uniform behind enemy lines in order to defeat the case against Skorzeny because this was some kind of weird legal technicality. Do you remember how in the last episode when we were talking about the Battle of the Bulge and this different stuff, how he was given, um, you know, supposed to wear this American outfit behind enemy lines in order to stay? Anyhow, 
Thomas saying this, that his defense would really help him out. And Ralph Gannis would say that Thomas had been put up to this by none other than William Donovan and William Stevenson. So William Wild Bill Donovan is often viewed to be the founding father of the CIA. Um, and he served as the head of the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA, which I'm sure most of you guys have heard about in some sort of context before. I believe that at some other point in the history of this podcast that I've mentioned Wild Bill Donovan before in the OSS as being a precursor to the CIA, but the Office of Strategic Services was the CIA before the CIA got started, and it would eventually turn into the CIA. But William Stevenson was the Canadian spymaster, often viewed to be as uh, one of the real-life inspiration for James Bond, which I'm not sure if that's true. That's just something that I've heard in various different books that he was one of the real-life inspirations for James Bond. But I believe Ian Fleming was a intelligence dude himself, and it's not hard to see how James Bond could serve as good propaganda for, you know, uh, British intelligence and what have you. But anyhow, Stevenson would run the British Security Coordination Office in New York City, which was located out of all places in Rockefeller Center and would serve as the liaison between British and American intelligence agencies. And it would be very influential in the creation of future intelligence agencies. And so Donovan would create a secret paramilitary group underneath the umbrella of the World Commerce Corporation. So we have OSS Donovan creating the World Commerce Corporation, which we will refer back to the World Commerce Corporation or the WCC throughout the entirety of this series, as it has large ramifications for the rest of the Scorzini saga. And Stevenson would create the British American Canadian Corporation or the BACC the same year as the WCC was created. So I know that it's getting complex already, but the WCC was actually registered in Panama and the registration papers give the appearance that the BACC was invested in WCC which all of this is very complicated, but it's hard to avoid it getting complicated because of the interlocking nature of these companies and also these intelligence agencies at the time. And so that's, you know, not to mention all of this corporate architecture and these different intelligence agencies using these companies as fronts is made to be intentionally obtuse and difficult to decipher. So they're not really wanting to make it easy but anyhow, I mean, it appears as if the BACC is invested in the WCC. We know that Stevenson was working as a liaison between American and British intelligence agencies. And so we have Donovan and Stevenson who are creating these private companies that are essentially serving as fronts for the activities of American and British intelligence and it might seem like I'm going off on a tangent right now, but, you know, it is, according to Gannis, Stevenson and Donovan, who are putting up Commander Yeo Thomas to this, and the WCC and the BACC are going to rear their ugly heads time and time again throughout the Scorzini tale. So I wanted to just go ahead and get that out of the way. But after Plan Blue, 
which we you know just previously discussed was exposed and postponed donovan would you know because i mean we have you know people in the french government and you know stuff who are basically coming out and talking about plan blue i'm sure at the time the french communists got a hold of this and were putting out the information out there that you know western intelligence is trying to create these fascist networks in order to stop the red tide in france which looks like it was you know heading towards some sort of you know communist government possibly coming into power but that you know uh would be that they would attempt to thwart that these western intelligence agencies but donovan would create a private paramilitary group that would consist of american british french and canadian operatives operating under the umbrella of this world commerce corporation and so the World Commerce Corporation has been described by William Donovan as a commercially oriented espionage net. So, I mean, it's it's kind of weird and we'll get into it, but I mean, it's almost like if uh, the Black Cube or if, you know, Kroll or one of these weird private you know, security agencies was like almost mixed with like a, uh, uh, what's the the name of the uh, private military group? It slips my mind at the moment, but they changed names a bunch of times. But anyways, it's, it's this weird kind of group, but the World Commerce Corporation, you know, is described by Donovan as this commercially oriented espionage net. And so this private paramilitary group that was created to operate inside of the WCC which Gannis refers to as the secret paramilitary group, because this paramilitary group doesn't have, you know, a name on the books that we can refer to it as. So he refers to it as the secret paramilitary group, or SPG. They would conduct an operation entitled Compass Rose, named after the star-shaped design found below a compass needle, which, as you guys might be thinking, huh, that sounds very similar to the logo or whatever you want to call it of another group and that is nato you know starting to think of operation gladio my friends and the fact that nato is no stranger to setting up stay behind armies to thwart communism should make one see this connection between you know compass rose and nato
Before I read something, I just want to make it clear that the SDECE is the, and I'm going to probably butcher this, so forgive me, friends, the Service de Documentation Exterior et de Contra Espionage, or in simple Midwestern English, which is all this pathetic white boy can wrap his little brain around, is the anti-communist French military secret service. So when I talk about the SDECE, I'm talking about the anti-communist French military secret service that was created around the time of all this plan blue, compass rose nonsense. And so hopefully everybody's keeping up. I know this is getting all complicated. I'm throwing the names of all these different people and groups around. And I, I understand that this is complicated. So hopefully... This is all coming out clear, and as I said, I'm just a simple Midwestern boy, so it took, it's taken me a little bit to wrap my head around all these different things, and even many more groups and people who we're going to get into throughout this series, but I'm just looking out at the forest outside my home. Got the window open right now. It is deceptively cold outside it looks like it could be a somewhat nice day outside but you step outside and it's miserable so in lieu of actually going out and hanging outside i've got the blinds open and i'm just talking to my friends which is you guys as i look out the window and talk about auto scorzini but anyhow back to the subject at hand so i need to quit looking at the window for a second because I am about to read from NATO Secret Armies by Danielle Ganser, once again, where he writes about Compass Rose, which picked up right where Plan Blue dropped off after this scandal, where all of this information is starting to get out and in the open. So, anyways, here is from Danielle Ganser. The secret war against the communists did not end when Plan Blue was exposed and closed down in 1947. Much to the contrary, French Socialist Prime Minister Paul Ramadier saw to it that his trusted chiefs within the military secret service were not removed by the scandal. When the storm had passed, he ordered Henri Ribière, chief of the SDECE, and Pierre Foucault, de deputy director of the SDECE, in late 1947 to erect a new anti-communist secret army under the codename Rose des Vins or Rose of the Winds, i.e. Compass Rose, the star-shaped official symbol of the NATO. The code name was well chosen for when NATO was created in 1949 with headquarters in Paris, the SDECE coordinated its anti-communist secret war closely with the military alliance. The secret soldiers understood that within its maritime original context of the compass rose is the card pattern below the compass needle, according to which the course is set, and according to which corrections are undertaken if the ship is in danger of stirring off course. As the secret cooperation with the United States intensified in April 1951, the French SDECE opened a station in Washington. According to the overall CIA and NATO planning for anti-communist secret warfare in Western Europe, the Rose des Vins army within the SDECE had the task to locate and fight subversive communist elements within the French Fourth Republic. Furthermore, it had undertaken evacuation preparations and provided for a suitable exile base abroad. The Rose des Vins secret army was trained to undertake sabotage, guerrilla, and intelligence gathering 
oper gathering operations under enemy occupation. France was divided into numerous, ge numerous geographical stay-behind zones to which secret cells were allocated, with each zone being supervised by an SDECE officer. So there is a little bit about Compass Rose. And remember, Yeo Thomas is, you know, operating in a similar kind of venue, if not directly with this, where he is, you know, uh, I mean, just before we return to the trial of Scorzini, it is worth briefly mentioning that Yeo Thomas would return to his job that he had prior to, you know, World War II at a fashion company, which was located in Paris. And at the same time in which he returned to this job, there was, you know, overlap with Plan Blue and Compass Rose operations beginning to take place. And so, you know, we have Thomas who, you know, leaves France. He's going to do all this British intelligence shit. And he just so happens to show back up in Paris right after the war, right when we have Plan Blue and Compass Rose operations taking place. And he was tasked, you know, with this job of overseeing these, you know, kind of French movements against communism and stuff like that. But this is seen by Gannis, you know, as evidence of his involvement in these operations. But anyhow, there is a bit of context regarding both Thomas and the networks that Scorvini, Scorzini, excuse me, will eventually become enmeshed in and will occur later in our discussion of Scorzini. And I mean, this is going to be one of those, uh, concentric circles that Scorsini talks about that, you know, will end up having, you know, reverberations much further into the future and might even come in handy when we're talking later about Scorsini and his possible role in the assassination of JFK. But we'll get into that and we'll decide for ourselves how legitimate that is or may not be. But anyhow, let's get back to Scorsini's trial. So, Scorzini, you know, he has Yeo Thomas come to his defense and back him up, which is kind of weird, you know, because, I mean, supposedly the Allies aren't on the side of the Nazis. And, you know, Thomas was a victim of the Nazis at one point, you know, so you could kind of wonder for a second. But as all of you guys know, there's all the Operation Paperclip and Gladio and all this anti-communist stuff and Western intelligence agencies working with Nazis. But Scorzini's case would be dismissed, and this was thanks, and this was thanks in no small part to Thomas, whom Gannis believed was sent, you know, by Donovan and Stevenson, um, you know, who set up the WCC and the BACC and all this to help Scorzini out in his trial. You know, so we have Thomas, who's you know probably sent by Donovan and Stevenson, and he helps Scorzini out in his trial. And then Colonel Abraham H. Rosenfeld, who was working to prosecute Scorzini, would say, I still think Scorzini is the most dangerous man in Europe. Now, he says still thinks. The title of the most dangerous man in Europe was something that had kind of started to circulate, circulate about Scorzini after his, you know, Nazi commando escapades, specifically the Grand Sasso rescue of Benito Mussolini. Um, which we talked about in our previous episode on Scorzini, but American Army Lieutenant William Denson, who was in charge of prosecuting Nazi war criminals at Dachau, would say of Scorzini before his trial ever began, and perhaps this foreshadows what would come of the trial, would say, shoot, we shouldn't try him. 
I think we ought to hire him, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, I'm laughing just because that seems to be the uh, modus operandi of a lot of these Western intelligence guys at the time, immediately after World War II, that we should enlist the Nazis in helping stop the evil boogeyman of communism. Now, something that I can't neglect, although it is too early in the story, um, of Scorzini to delve deep into the JFK assassination aspect is there is someone who would appear in the FBI's investigations into the Kennedy assassination, and that is Judge Jesse C. Duvall, who would be the one to preside over who else's trial but Otto Scorzini. So Scorzini would give him an ivory embossed box with a dagger after his trial, which I don't really know if that's should if that's technically even allowed, but who the hell knows? It's what happened. But within days of the JFK assassination, Duval, you know, this guy who presided over Scorzini's trial, um, he was a Fort Worth native, and he would be interviewed by the FBI in regards to his relationship with none other than George DeMorenschild. And, you know, George DeMorenschild seems to be someone who was Oswald Han Oswald's handler, at least for a period of time. He was the, you know, wealthy white Russian immigre. Um, I'm doing all this from memory, but I mean, I think that he was the one who helped get Lee Harvey Oswald set up with the job at the Texas School Book Depository, if I'm not wrong. But anyways, um, he was just this guy who himself has intelligence connections and like you know would later even write to bush senior later in his life because he was afraid after the assassination of jfk and bush senior would kind of brush him off to the side and it almost gets sad if you know it weren't so difficult to feel sad for george demore and Schilt. but anyways um I think all of that's correct. I'm, if I messed up anything, sorry. It's been a while since I've looked into George DeMorenschild, but nonetheless to say, he was this guy who was in connection with Lee Harvey Oswald and just kind of oddly helped him out in all these different ways, was helping out Oswald and Marina, and it's just kind of this weird intelligence-leaked figure who seems like he could be an Oswald handler, like he was assigned to Oswald in some sort of capacity. But DeMorenschild had approached Duvall in regards to having him help out Lee Harvey Oswald with Oswald's dishonorable discharge from the Marines. So the FBI would figure that out and uh, that Duvall was close Excuse me, I'm stumbling all over my words here. I get too excited when JFK talk starts to come up. So hopefully when we get to later episodes, I'm not just a big stumbling mess for hours at a time. But anyhow, the FBI would figure out that Duvall was close also with a friend of Jack Ruby's named Roy Pike. And it would actually be Pike who would show up to the home of Duvall immediately after Ruby took out Oswald. So perhaps we will come back to Jesse Duvall later on in the series, but there's just two very weird connections he has to two very sus people, you know, George DeMorenschild and Jack Ruby, and he's in the, you know, Dallas area at the time of the assassination. And then when you factor in all the weirdness that we'll get into with Scorzini and the JFK assassination, Who's to say 
but it is all very weird. But perhaps in this, you know, post-war, uh, you know, Cold War maniacs, uh, maybe it's hard to throw a stone without at, you know, a group of those guys without hitting someone who has some sort of weird connection to the JFK assassination. I mean, obviously, you know, the stance of this shows that the JFK assassination was the CIA enlisting, you know, some sort of elements in order to help in the assassination of Kennedy. You know, we don't believe that it was, you know, Oswald firing from the school book depository uh, um, and that he was a lone pinko madman or whatever. So, you know, I'm not saying that the Stones throw comment, you know, just because I'm saying that, you know, maybe there was no conspiracy because there definitely was. But also the people who were talking about all run in these circles. But anyways, I'm I'm digressing and I am floundering. So I will get back to the subject at hand. So a little uh, over a week after um, the name change took place from, you know, it started off as the OSS, and then there was the, you know, Strategic Services Unit, and then there was finally the CIA. Uh, there would be an announcement by the World Commerce President Frank Ryan that was made that the WCC had been recapitalized and in short, this means that the BACC and the WCC would be, in the words of Gannis, be brought under one roof. So not long after, you know, Frank Ryan said all this, Donovan would receive permission from the military governor of Germany, Lucius Clay, and U.S. diplomat Robert Murphy to use WCC as a front for private paramilitary efforts in support of Compass Rose. And is this that Gannis says would pave the way for the phantom return? of Scorzini. So, you know, um, I probably should have mentioned that part when I was talking about the WCC stuff, but nonetheless, we see all these different things happening. We see the BACC and the WCC who are getting involved with this Compass Rose stuff. We see Yo Thomas who is involved with all this weird French bullshit getting involved with, you know, uh, the Scorzini trial and helping him out in his trial. We see the judge who's presiding over the Scorzini trial has these weird connections later on to the JFK shit, which is kind of sus in light of Scorzini probably, or maybe, or who knows being involved with JFK stuff. We'll get into that later, but anyways, so we have all of these different strands that are kind of beginning to appear and weave their way into the fabric of this bizarre story of Hitler's top commando turned Western intelligence asset. But now let's get into Scorzini's escape, or maybe I should say release. I don't know. You can be the judge of that. But anyways, let's just go ahead and get into Scorzini's escape. So even though the case against Scorzini was dropped, he was still being held for some unknown reason. However, this arrangement would not exist too much longer, and Scorzini and the formerly mentioned Radel would be retained as prisoners, but their treatment would not exactly be what one would expect, you know, for a couple of Nazis who did a lot of damage, to say the least. Scorzini would say of this time period, Everyone I meet makes me feel again that I am a soldier, even though I am still sharing a lot as a prisoner of 
war, you know. So not exactly getting treated like a POW, but Skrzyny and Radl would both be asked by U.S. officials to write a history of German special forces, and the two would accept this offer, and shortly after they would be transferred from where they were being held to Camp King, which was located in a city northwest of Frankfurt, and it's here that they would be taken to be processed and vetted for a work for work in a stay-behind army underneath the Compass Rose operations, at least according to Gannis. And Camp King had been used by the German Luftwaffe as an interrogation center, but after it had been taken over by the Americans, it was being used as an internment base, which also had a host of intelligence operatives located there. So at Camp King was the European Command Intelligence Center, or the ECIC, and they would often interrogate German scientists intelligence officers and others deemed to have intelligence useful to western agencies so camp king conducted the bulk of screening when it comes to nazi scientists especially those with backgrounds in rocketry and ballistics and you know we know of operation paperclip that you know there was lots of rocket scientists like werner von braun and other scientists who were brought over from the nazi side we talked about in our plum island episode about eric traub who was you know involved with the plum island stuff and who uh, was researching biological warfare using insects and all this different stuff and he would be at the plum island opening ceremony i'm sure that we've probably covered somewhere else some sort of other nazi scientist who was brought over after the war this kind of stuff was going on but there was also an operations branch at camp david that came up with plans on how to act on intelligence they received and so henry p shart was the intelligence chief at king and I meant to say Camp King, sorry, um, you know, but Henry P. Shard, he was the intelligence chief at King, and he would carry out his missions under the 7,734th Detachment, which was commanded by Harold Potter, and Skorzeny and Radel would be assigned to Potter's unit once they got to Camp King. And so the two were also assigned a control officer named Theodore Metaxas. And Arnold Silver would be the one to interrogate Skorzeny, who was the chief of the counterintelligence section. And so this chief of the counterintelligence section would admit that he had a close liaison with the strategic services unit, which had by this time became the CIA, which given Camp King's role in processing people for Operation Paperclip and with the CIA ties and all the other information at hand, it would make sense that this kind of processing is exactly what was happening with Scorzini, who we know for a fact later would get you know, involved with Western intelligence agencies. And so Gannis has an interesting description of what that interview from, you know, Silver interviewing Scorzini looked like. I'm almost, I choose the word interview intentionally because um, it's almost instead of looking at it like an interrogation, I almost kind of view this as like a, a job interview and whether that is known or not known to Scorzini. That's almost what it was like. But anyways, Ralph Gannis writes, Silver's recollection of his first encounter with Scorzini is found in an article Silver wrote entitled Questions, 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 Memories of 
Abarusel, replete with humor the type you often find between soldier adversaries. On arriving in my interrogation room for the first time, he promptly warned me, he being Scorzini, promptly warned me not to try and use any physical violence because he could overpower me in no time. He calmed down when I asked him and reply whether he could move faster than a bullet from a forty-five caliber pistol. Obviously, the two men hit it off from the start, and Silver must have been very impressed with Scorzini, stating he was rightly acquitted in his opinion. But it was Silver's comment on Scorzini's motivations and character that are most illuminating. He was not a Nazi, and in fact, any ideology was alien to him. He was purely and simply a man of action and a patriotic German. These positive comments bring to light that Silver's actual relationship with Scorzini was not to interrogate him for further prosecution, but to evaluate Scorzini and determine if he should be utilized by Western intelligence. An important factor in this equation is the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency, which occurred only nine days after Scorzini's trial on September 18th, 1947. So there we have it from Gannis, a little bit about this interview between uh, Scorzini and Silver that was taking place. But the vetting of Nazis for use in intelligence was initially conducted by Army Counterintelligence, but soon were then taken up by the Office of Policy Coordination after its creation in 1948. And so the Office of Policy Coordination coordination the OPC was intended to be bifurcated you know receiving direction from the state department but on the administrative side of things tied with the CIA and this office was the creation of four men who all just so happened to be connected to the council on foreign relations you know that staple of conspiracy lore for a long time now which you know I mean a lot of the people who talk about the CFR are, you know, kind of John Birch types. Um, I read a long time ago a book by James Perloff, who was a, a Bircher, um, and I think that it was through the Birch Society that the book on the Council on Foreign Relations was published, you know, which was kind of like a typical uh, one-world communist conspiracy under the UN type bullshit. But anyways, the CFR was, you know, a think tank that did... Uh, a lot of things that are important when you're taking into account the parapolitical um, you know, side of American history. And, you know, it, it was um, important, especially in this time period right after World War II, you know, during the early days of the Cold War. The CFR was definitely one of these, you know... Uh, think tanks that held a lot of sway and a lot of policy would be, you know, decided in groups like the, the, the CFR or whatever, you know, although there is some kind of kooky, you know, that it's, you know, communist conspiracy stuff um, involving the CFR, but nonetheless, they were an important group. But the OPC would be, you know, created by uh you know, four men all tied to the CFR, with one of these men being the, at the time, CFR president, Alan Dulles, you know, who also would be the CIA director. After Kennedy was whacked, he would get a place on the Warren Commission, even though he had been fired 
by Kennedy, you know, so obviously there's a conflict of interest in that, and one could only wonder why he was brought on to the Warren Commission, except for the fact that, you know, it was intended to be a cover-up from the beginning. But anyways, so Alan Dulles would arrange for Frank Wisner to be the chief of the OPC, and Wisner was a scumbag in his own right. I believe it was him, but I believe he was actually called the Mad Hatter of the CIA or something like that at one point, and I think Wisner has actually popped up in previous episodes. Maybe it was our Blood and Gold episode um, or, or something like that, but I believe Frank Wisner is one of those people who's appeared on this show because it seems like I can't do an episode without you know mentioning five different people who have already appeared in one of our previous episodes. That's just kind of the nature of this type of research is you start seeing how closely interconnected all of these people and groups and intelligence agencies and fronts are. But anyhow, the OPC would be involved in the assassination of suspected double agents and all kinds of other covert operations. These types of operations that someone like Scorzini would be, you know, familiar with. But one of the men who worked alongside a Weisner CF, CIA officer, Harry Rositsky, would say, it was a visceral business of using any bastard as long as he was anti-communist. And Scorzini was a bastard. And if he was any kind of bastard, it was an anti-communist bastard. So there's to tell you a little bit of something. But CIA, the CIA liaison officer, Colonel James Critchfield, who was familiar with Weisner's operations like Rossitsky was, and who would work also alongside the Nazi Reinhard Gellin, you know, who we will get to the Gellin organization as well in this series. But he would say some of the people Frank brought in were terrible guys, but he did not focus on it. So why am I going on about the office the office of policy coordination? <laughs> so why am I going on about the office of policy coordination? Well, they would contact Scorzini shortly after his release. And when Scorzini and Radel first arrived, they would stay in Tudor-style homes, you know, meant for VIP prisoners. And the two would receive code names, with Scorzini's being Abel and Radel's being Baker. And Scorzini would claim that this was due to special security regulations, and I don't know anything about running a war criminal internment facility, but that seems, you know, a, a little bit off to me, but hey, I'm not an expert in that. And Scorzini would say that he was staying in this Tudor home of two Italian acquaintances of his who, at least according to Gannis, were most likely two of Mussolini's fascist officers who worked under Scorzini on some sort of special forces mission and who are now being recruited into CIA operations. So, while at Camp King, Scorzini would have a number of visitors, and one of them would be his former wife, Gretel, who had, during the period of Nazi power, worked at the Reich main security office, where, which was, you know, the ones to oversee Skorzeny's unit and stuff. We covered that earlier. But next, Skorzeny and Radel would receive a 14-day Christmas pass to, I don't know, I guess go on National Socialist Lampoon's <laughs> Christmas vacation. Um, but Gannis believes that Skorzeny most likely used this time. Ma'am. That would be a 
quite the movie. National Socialists lampoons Christmas Vacation, and it's Scorzini and Radel going through the uh, countryside, meeting all their old Nazi buddies, getting into all kinds of weird, wacky Christmas antics. You know, there's the scene where Scorzini wants to have the best Christmas display, so he creates, you know, a bunch of bombs and sets them off in the neighborhood and blames it on uh, the the communists. There could be, uh, what else, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, Radel goes and smokes a cigarette outside by the street, and it's by the you know, a sewage pipe, which is open, and it creates an explosion. Uh, what are some other scenes from uh, Christmas Vacation? Anyways, I think that that would be um, a good Christmas film for the whole family. But anyhow, so they would get this 14-day pass, and Gannis believes that Scorzini most likely used this time, you know, to establish contact between him and former officers and soldiers from the Reich, um, some of whom were already connected with, you know, French, British, or American intelligence. But the two would also, during this time, pay a visit to Hitler's secretary, Goethe Christian, who would escape from the Führer's bunker and who was known to be very close with the dictator. So one of the interesting people... Um, that would, you know, they would go visit. But another interesting aspect of the National Socialist Lampoon Christmas vacay that is relayed in the Scorzini papers, I hate that I just said vacay. I need to be shot and lined up along with all these other war criminals. Um, but another interesting aspect, you know, of this, you know, 14-day pass that they got is... Um, and I'll just read from the Scorzini papers again. Scorzini and Radel's first stop under the pass was in the town of Abarusi. In his memoir, Scorzini writes, Everything I received... Everywhere I received a pleasant welcome from old friends and new acquaintances. It was the first opportunity since my captivity to experience life outside the barbed wire fence. It was a winter of starvation, for the knees on the outside were greater than we had ever imagined. Our first visit was to Hanna Reichsch, who lived in Abarusel. Hannah Reich was a famous German test pilot and favorite of Adolf Hitler. She had made an incredibly daring flight into battle-torn Berlin with Luftwaffe General Ritter von Grimm during the final days of the Third Reich in an effort to rescue Hitler, who refused to fly out of the capital. While at Reich's house, another seemingly routine event occurred that, again, had unrecorded, deeper implications. Scorzini writes in his memoirs, I met a Roman Catholic priest. We had a long conversation and parted with mutual respect and understanding for each other. There was an inference here to an agreement of some sort that may have dealt with Vatican intelligence operatives facilitating the movement of former Nazis through Europe at the behest of U.S. intelligence. Which, I mean, we know that the Vatican was involved with all kinds of weird, you know, recruiting former Nazis, or not recruiting former Nazis, but at least helping uh, whisk them away to safety. They were involved with, you know, Operation Gladio stuff. I mean, you can just read Operation Gladio by Paul Williams to get a good idea of all that stuff. Perhaps we'll do an episode on that at some point in the future, but then again, maybe it's something that has already been, you know, kind of covered enough and we don't really need to touch on. But anyways, Camp King would be shut down and so Scorzini and Radel would leave 
However, after the rumor that Skrzyny had rescued Hitler, you know, began to resurface in Europe once again, he would be taken to Nuremberg, and he would have to await the verdict of a commission that was tasked with investigating, you know, whether or not Skorzeny rescued Hitler, which I need to do more research into that, but there's got to be some sort of good conspiracy out there that, you know, Skorzeny rescued Hitler, and that Hitler's, you know, chilling, drinking margaritas on the beach in Mexico or something. But the case would be quickly dismissed and Skorzeny wouldn't remain in Nuremberg long. But it's possible that the story was, you know, known to be fraudulent from the get-go. And the circulation of this story was all a ruse in order for Skorzeny to be brought to Nuremberg so he could be further interviewed about his future by intelligence officials. And speaking of these intelligence officials, while Skorzeny was in Nuremberg, none other than who else but Wild Bill Donovan would interview Skorzeny, who was freshly transferred to the witness ring from Weisbaden. And this would make Skorzeny one of the first Nazis to be interrogated by Donovan. And so Skorzeny in 1957 would speak about this conversation. So, I mean, this is coming right from the Nazi horse's mouth. He would say, one day I was called into an especially large interrogation room. A number of older gentlemen in uniform, among them a U.S. Army general, awaited me. Once again, I had to go over my mission in Italy at great length. At the end, the general posed a few supplementary questions which revealed considerable knowledge. Unfortunately, I only learned much later that it had been Major General William Donovan who had interrogated me. You know, so we have, you know... One of the most classic intelligence guys, you know, the OSS director, the, you know, we have Donovan, who's involved with all this weird World Commerce Corporation and BACC stuff, along with Stevenson, um, here in, in the mix. So, very interesting to say, at the very least. But anyhow... Skorzeny would later give another account of this meeting, unless this account was describing an altogether separate meeting and the two had met more than once. So what is strange is that the official Nuremberg records do not say anything of this meeting, which I guess it's strange unless you really think about it, you know, because it's the topic of conversation isn't something that they really wanted an official account of or that the meeting ever even happened. But once again, um, you know, Ralph Gannis, the author of the Scorzini papers, you know, this is one of the sources that I've heavily drawn from along with, you know, Kuhn and Dallas by Alberelli and a couple other um, sources, you know, Scorzini's memoirs and stuff for these episodes. But, um, he, he was the one to obtain Skorzeny's private papers at auction, Gannis is, and according to these papers, this conversation did in fact take place, and what is even stranger and more alarming is that this conversation would largely consist of talking about the secretive and formerly mentioned World Commerce Corporation that Donovan helped create. So Gannis seems to believe, and I would agree, that this was no normal meeting, but that rather... Donovan was sounding out Scorzini and that he wanted to see the man who conducted the rescue of Mussolini and see what intelligence he had to offer him in regard to Nazi assets and how they could play a part in, you know, post-war asset recovery operations and possibly about, you know, employment and about the Soviet Union because all these, you know, intelligence paranoids because all these guys really are so paranoid 
the general guy in uh, Doctor Strange Love. He's all too perfect of a character that really just highlights what these Cold War <laughs> loonies are like. I mean, reading Cold War history has got to be some of the most brain-rattling, just absolutely uh, bonkers stuff. But, you know, they were all worried about, you know, uh, another world war or something with the communist or, you know, communist takeover of the world or whatever have you. But as Alborelli says in Coup in Dallas, and referring to Scorzini, his acceptance of Donovan's invite would become more apparent in the coming months and years. And so Scorzini would also say of this meeting with Donovan, Donovan asked me during my time in Nuremberg prison, the meeting was very cordial. There was neither victor nor vanquished, just two soldiers, both rather daredevilish and inventive, who had served their countries to the best of their ability. So Scorzini has said at some point that he was told that he would resemble, um, reassemble elements of his old command. And perhaps this is when he was tapped, you know, by Western intelligence to assemble a team for covert operations. Um, again, it would interview someone who was a former military, his former military brass um, during the time he stated that Scorzini was intentionally released in order to figure out what he could do for us. And so Scorzini would also mention in his memoirs contacting German industrialists, scientists, and economic experts during his time in Nuremberg. And so one of these men, Hajlmar Schacht, who had been the Reichsbank president and economic minister and was one of the people who Scorzini would speak with, um, would advise Scorzini in the future, um, which we'll get into that all later, but, you know, would be someone who would help Scorzini with the financial aspect of things. So this is one of the people who was no small level Nazi by any means who Scorzini would get in contact with during his time in Nuremberg. But both of these men would share not only, you know, a Nazi past, but a hatred of communism, as well as deep ties to Western intelligence in the post-war era. And Schacht would establish contacts with Americans and would actually become an asset of none other than Allen Dulles. And so by some accounts, it would be Dulles who worked covertly to ensure that Schacht would come out of Nuremberg with a not guilty verdict. And Schacht would later be involved with Scorzini's business ventures in oil and steel. So Scorzini would then once again be transferred, this time to Darmstadt, where he would go through a program of supposed denazification and from Scorzini's own account, he found the setup at this camp to be preferable to the other ones he had been at. And during his time there, Scorzini, along with Radel, would volunteer to help clean up rubble, which we will see perhaps later that maybe it's not as charitable as it may seem at first glance. Um, but anyhow, some time passes and July comes and Scorzini, according to the Gannis series of events is waiting for the signal for um, American intelligence to, you know, bolt. And during the latter part of his time at Darmstadt, Scorzini would receive a letter from the formerly mentioned White Rabbit, none White Rabbit, White Rabbit, I can't speak for the life of me sometimes, and I decided to get into podcasting, so you how smart I am. But, um, you know, the White Rabbit, a letter from None other than Commander Yeo Thomas, the Special Operations Executive Spook. And it would read, You did a jolly good job during the war. If you ever need a place to stay, I have a home in Paris. Escape! 
And just the way that that letter is written, it's like a weird leave it to beaver vibes, but like in Nazi, you did a jolly good job during the war. <laughs> Talking about being a Nazi. But anyhow, Scorzini would say of the reason for his escape in his memoirs, three years and two months seemed to be enough. I warned the American colonel who was commander of the Darmstadt camp that I had decided to get away. He didn't believe me, but two hours later, I installed myself with some difficulty in the trunk of his car. The German driver who was going shopping for the camp commander unwillingly drove me through all the checkpoints. So, you know, I mean, according to Scorzini, he escaped, but perhaps it was more of a release when we take into all of the connections he had to military um, people and Western intelligence agencies and French intelligence. You know, he just got interviewed by freaking William Donovan. But the man to interrogate Otto Scorzini, you know, the formerly mentioned Arnold Silver, would say in the article that we talked about earlier, questions, 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 that it was a War Department detachment in Frankfurt. And so, I mean, the CIA, who had given Scorzini the green light to flee. But after Scorzini escaped, he would remain on the down low as he began to assemble a network which he would later use for the Compass Rose covert operations, which we have already talked about to a little bit, but we will get more into. And this same network of American, British, and French intelligence agents who seemed to have played a role in protecting Scorzini from justice and helping him get released would also be the same network of people who Scorzini would go to work for and would work for throughout the rest of his life. So some of Scorzini's friends from the outside, you know, some of you who used to be members of his old commando unit and were now working for Western intelligence agencies, according to Gannis, would leave a suitcase at a nearby railway station for Scorzini, while at the same time, Scorzini's wife, Anna, was being rescued. And Scorzini would arrive in Bavaria where a safe house, a mountain lodge, which was rented by this lady, um, this supposed countess, Ilse von Fickenstein, had been set up for his arrival. And Scorzini and Ilse would become romantic during this time period. And Ilse claimed to be the daughter of the niece of the former Reich banker, who we just talked about, Hajmar Schacht. And I should have said earlier that she you know well never mind i did that she's a supposed countess she claimed to be a countess but neither of these claims um are particularly true necessarily um about either you know her being the daughter of the niece of the reich banker or a countess we'll refer to alberelli for this where he writes suggestion that she was directly related to hitler's banker shocked stems prop primarily from the affectionate term Uncle Hajmar, used both by Ilza and Otto, but there is a possibility she was directly related to Hajmar in some way. Countess could have been a borrowed title. However, Ilza was by all accounts a brilliant operator who had worked for German intelligence during the war and had affiliations with French intelligence during the post-war period, as noted. Smith writes that, in an intellectual sense, Ilza would take over in Scorzini's life where Carl Radel had left off. 
and that um, Smith he's referring to is Stuart Smith, the author of Otto Skorzeny, The Devil's Disciple, um, which is another one of the books. I mean, you could read um, the Skorzeny Papers by Ralph Gannis. There's uh, Otto Skorzeny, Devil's Disciple by Stuart Smith. Uh, there's Q in Dallas, which, um, you know, this, or you can just stick around for the rest of this series and you'll learn plenty about Otto Skorzeny and not that you can't get a more in-depth view of him by reading those books especially um, if for all of you real parapolitical heads especially the stuff in uh, the Skorzeny papers and coup in Dallas however something that Ilza would go on to say later in life is that Skorzeny was in contact with none other than the Gellin organization who we briefly mentioned which you know what i'm gonna just go ahead and say that we will pick up on that and much much more in the next episode i'm looking at the time here where i'm at i might even though it's brutally cold try to take the dog on a walk if i'm able to face this severe cold and the sun will be setting before long not that i can see the sun because it's hiding behind a absolutely gray sky but the night is coming the nightfall is soon and uh you know even though it's cold it's nice to get out there get some of that fresh country air i just recently moved out of the city into the country i'm back in my old country stomping grounds because um, I'm a country boy at heart. A country boy will survive. So anyhow, I might just have to put on my boots. Or, nah, I'd wear tennis shoes. That's going to be much more comfortable to walk in. But anyhow, I'm going on. Also, I might have to make me some dinner. Something Lent appropriate. Something vegetarian. So if you guys want to get in contact with me, you can do so on Twitter.com at ThingObserver which you can tell me anything that you want to tell me, good, bad, in between, if there's something you want me to know about Scorzini for future episodes, if you want to make episodes recommendations, if you have really good vegetarian or vegan dinner options, you can message me your favorite recipes um, for stuff like that, because I will need those during Lent. So, um, yeah, you can say whatever you want to me. If you liked this episode, if you liked the previous episode, if you've liked any of my episodes, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify Podcasts. Let people know what you think about the show. It's greatly appreciated, and it helps the show to be seen by more people. Also, if you enjoy it, feel free to share it with a, uh, a friend or a family member who you think might have an interest if there's a show that is of a topic that's of their interest because we've covered so many things. We're talking about Scorzini today. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about the Titanic. We talked about Lyme disease. We've talked about the anthrax attacks. We've talked about a whole lot of stuff. We covered Japanese gold, Alfred Kinsey, like occult infiltration of the Catholic Church. We've talked about it all, folks. We're going to continue to keep talking about it all on this show. But anyhow, keep it real out there to all my listeners. I love you all, and thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you all soon.